if we're not a democracy that can peacefully transfer power from one presidential administration to another, we're not the United States of America anymore. And your inflation is not going to matter if your society is collapsing around you. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Braff. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, a few announcements on the front end of this episode. Next week, we're going to be on a special schedule because most of our team here at Lost Debate are on vacation. And so on Monday, we have an interview I conducted with Brian Rosenthal, who's a New York Times reporter. It's a staggering interview just about how expensive it is to build stuff in America. So I highly recommend that. And then midweek, we have two guest co-hosts. Uh, and I'll be outnumbered on that episode. I'll have two libertarian, sort of conservative-leaning co hosts for that week and the week after. And so that should be pretty exciting. We also have a new episode, Corey, of Stitch This, which is Corey's podcast where he interviews some of the most successful uh, TikTok influencers. And he has Owen Conflenti, who's a Houston news anchor. And it's a super fun and interesting and funny interview. And so I can't recommend that enough. Go to Stitch This wherever you get your podcasts. With that, Corey, what do we have this week? On today's show, more damning revelations on the police response in Uvalde and a breakthrough in the Senate on gun reform. We'll go over the latest there, as well as the biggest story in Washington right now, the January 6th hearings. We'll talk about what we've seen from the committee so far. New York's highest court says an elephant is not a person. And believe it or not, that's actually news. We'll talk about legal personhood. The FDA is aiming to take the nicotine out of cigarettes, which is sort of like taking the fighting out of hockey. We'll discuss all of the sweeping reforms on smoking lately, and it's Thursday, so you know what that means. We've got a possibly radical idea from Ravi. But first things first, if you're tuning in from the airport, we're so sorry about the wait. Flying has never been exactly pleasant, but things are downright chaotic these days as airlines struggle to deal with the summer travel rush. Ravi, why is the airline industry in such disarray right now? Well, this is like super first world problems in some ways, but I actually just got back from a wedding in Italy. I know everybody should shed tears for me right now, but I my bag did not come with me. It's sitting somewhere in Italy right now. Oh, wow. And uh, about half of the people in the wedding that I talked to had some kind of baggage issue on the way there. So that doesn't even account for the people on the way home, including my best friend whose bag was lost and he had to, his wife had to go back with their child because all the stuff they needed for their kid, they had some special stuff they couldn't get in Italy. So she missed the whole wedding, had to come back. They, they weren't able to find the bag for like five or six days or something like that. So there's just like a mess happening out there and trying to deal with it yesterday. You just get the sense that there's panic in the air in the airports, understaffing in the airports. Like when I was at the the desk trying to get service to get my bag, for example, it felt like you were in the worst uh, run Arby's in your neighborhood. You know, it was just like people who didn't seem to know what they were doing, didn't give a shit about the, the question, just wanted to get you in and out as fast as possible. So I'm pretty sure I'm never getting my bag back. But that being said, this is not just about the service clerks. It's not just about bags. This is affecting all aspects of airline travel right now. And it's, it's kind of a perfect storm to use overuse metaphor. So right now, you have sky-high demand coming post-pandemic. People really want to travel this summer. You have pandemic staffing shortages that the airlines still haven't fully gotten ahead of yet. They're, they're trying to hire after having been understaffed, obviously, during the pandemic. And then they're dealing with national uh, staffing shortages. Like Every industry pretty much is dealing with staffing shortages right now. And so just trying to train new people up is going to be really hard. Fuel prices are really high and they're passing that on to customers. They have these ambitious schedules because they're trying to, you know, make profit after having lost some money during the pandemic and they're not able to meet these uh, schedules. And then you have this late spring and summer is when some of the more aggressive weather happens. And because of thunderstorms, which are common at this time of year, uh, 
planes either sometimes don't take off or they have to take longer to go to their destination because they have to fly around the storms. So you just have a lot happening right now and you just feel it in the airports. You, when you talk to people, people are having a hard time traveling. Traveling is more expensive. And by all accounts, this may get worse before it gets better. Yeah, this sounds very similar to the supply chain issues we talked about that happened earlier this year and then during the last holiday season, where it sounds like there's just a ton of things going wrong at the same time. Uh, a lot of it really does deal with this pilot shortage. Just, you know, having a shortage of pilots is not like having a shortage of, you know, cooks. Like you can't just a pilot just can't just go in the air after like a couple of weeks of training. Ricky, you were actually telling me earlier that it's actually become much more difficult to become a pilot in America. Yeah, it has actually. This goes back to a pretty major airline, like commercial airline crash in Buffalo, New York. And the like governmental response was to increase the amount of hours that pilots needed to train from 250 to 1500, which 1500 is the equivalent of like 38 full 40 hour work weeks. And that's in the air. So this is a huge threshold to hit. Also, the two pilots involved in the crash that they were responding to had gone way past that threshold. So it wouldn't actually have fixed the crash. But essentially what this has done is every year since there are less and less and less pilots, we're expected to have a shortage of 12,000 by 2023. This is even before the pandemic. So they pulled the ladder up and pilots are harder to come by because it's hugely expensive and time intensive to even get into the industry. And then you also had the issue of vaccine mandates and one of the most conservative occupations in the country is pilots. And so a probably lot of them- a military background. A lot, yeah, yeah, probably. That's the most likely theory. But so a lot of them who had been there for a while just decided to retire early. They're paid well and they left because they felt compelled. And so you have this kind of compounded, multi-factored, like governmental overreach situation that's really coming to bear its head in, a, in an ugly, disruptive way now. Here's a quote from uh, the spokesperson for one of the major pilots unions. He said, the airlines are underwater and trying to breathe through a straw. Airlines are poaching each other's pilots. It's a stunning level of aggression. So they're going after each other's pilots here. I continue to go back to like what I think is a sensible solution to not just this problem, but the host of staffing issues we have in this country right now, which is immigration. We need to let more people into this country to do the jobs that we need. If we're not able to train the people Obviously, the regulations you talked about need to be fixed, but I also think there are probably a ton of pilots out there from other countries that would be happy to come here and fly airplanes. Mm. It's also a very desirable job. Like Americans really want to do it, but you have to go so far underwater to fund yourself through that many hours of training. And to go from 250 to 1500 is just crazy. That is an insane jump. And, and Ravi, you mentioned the fact that airlines are trying to poach pilots from each other. And some airlines are just taking the route of, well, you know, we need more pilots. Let's just buy an entire other airline and see right. if we can get more pilots like that. We all know this huge debacle that's going over Spirit Airlines. They had a deal with Frontier. Frontier was going to buy Spirit. They were going to merge those two airlines together. And if they were to do that, they would, uh, they would actually become the fifth largest airline and be able to compete with like the big boys, the Deltas, the Uniteds of the world. But then JetBlue stepped into the fray and said, hey, we want to be the fifth largest airline. So JetBlue made an unsolicited offer to try to buy Spirit Airlines. And Spirit Airlines said, no, you know, we had a deal with Frontier. So then JetBlue said, well, we'll just do a hostile takeover of your company. And now they're offering, even I think Monday, they started offering, I think it was around $33.50 per share to the shareholders of Spirit. And they're also trying to get Spirit shareholders to vote against the Frontier merger that, that was already in place. Uh, and not to mention, there's a lot of uh, federal regulation that will go into these deals. It's, it's kind of in, up in the air as, as to whether the government will even allow this type of merger, because there's, as Ricky has pointed out, there's a lot of regulation when it comes to airlines. But 
that just goes to show you just how far some of these companies are going just to stay competitive in this industry. Yeah, I understand the frustration by a lot of people who look at the fact that this is an industry that's received a lot of subsidies, especially during the middle of the pandemic. And they say, all right, we should expect more from this industry. But I don't see an alternative. If we didn't bail out the airline industry during that period of time and we don't have an airline industry today, then I think our country couldn't function properly. They were even like part of the reason why we kept the airline industry afloat among the many obvious is that we were also transporting vaccines through these these airlines. And so I think that we as a we this is an area where government intervention is unfortunately needed. I think it's complicated and like whenever you're seeing a an industry like this that's understaffed with margins that are going to fluctuate between, you know, massive losses to massive profits uh, within a short number of years, I can understand the frustration, but I don't know how you calibrate it properly to make it long-term sustainable and avoid any of the backlash against these industries. This might be the case for, you know, high-speed rail. I'm just saying. Moving on, the more we learn about the police response in Uvalde, the worse things look. In a public hearing this week, Steve McCraw, the head of Texas State Police, referred to the response as an abject failure. He placed much of the blame on Uvalde's police chief, who he claims failed to act in a timely fashion and potentially provided false information in regards to the supposedly locked classroom door. One error, 14 minutes and eight seconds. That's how long the children waited and the teachers waited in rooms 111 to be rescued. And while they waited, the on-seat commander waited for a radio and rifles. Then he waited for shields. Then he waited for SWAT. Lastly, he waited for a key that was never needed. So yeah, according to McCraw, who's basically leading this Texas state investigation into basically what happened, just minutes after the gunman began shooting the officers on the scene had more than enough firepower and protective equipment to storm the classroom. And also, according to McCraw, this narrative about the door being locked and that and the, the police chief, Pete Arredondo, who's being blamed for a lot of this, basically rushing to try to find a key. Apparently, that narrative is just not true. Apparently, the door uh, was not locked and apparently couldn't even be locked because there was something malfunctioning about the door. Yeah, my reading of this, at least so far, and this obviously is like a hyper local issue where we don't have complete information, is that... McCraw is suggesting that it's very likely that the door was not locked. But from what I understand, there was there is a plausible scenario in which if the gunman went in the classroom and pulled it behind him, it could have been locked. And that hasn't been confirmed yet. But I think he's saying that it's it's highly likely that it was unlocked. But from my, you know, my sense on this is that for me, it's, it's hard to glean like a national lesson learned from this. Although when I do my radical idea, it is, it'll be connected to this. I, but uh, to me, it, it is puzzling, though, that the council in this town voted uh, not to offer a leave of absence to this chief, because regardless of whether the door was locked or not, I think it's well established at this point that it was a puzzling and insane decision not to go in there. And like a leave of absence at the very least seems warranted for this chief. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's anyone that's defending this action at all whatsoever. But even putting the entirety of what happened there aside in terms of the police response, I think just generally this tragedy is being responded to in a rarely expedient and bipartisan way uh, legislatively. 
Um, just this week, we saw a bipartisan passage 64 to 31 in favor of advancing the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act in terms of responding with gun control here. Um, and 14 Republicans and all the Democrats voted in favor to advance this to the House. Um, and we have enhanced background checks for those under 21 with a 10 day limit uh, for the government to actually go through that process in order to not back people up too unfairly in terms of accessing the Second Amendment rights that they have. Um, $120 million in funding for mental health and school safety, $750 million in incentives for states to implement red flag laws and crackdowns on straw purchasing. And so I think obviously everyone's in agreement that what happened police-wise is indefensible. And perhaps surprisingly, there's a lot of bipartisan movement and agreement that regardless, this is something that we need to address gun control-wise. And these measures seem fair and and measured to me personally. Well, it's kind of a catch-22. I mean, finally, the Senate has done something. Finally, our government is trying to act on this particular issue. But this, this bill, a lot of people, a lot of people on the left are saying that this is just pretty light as far as what it will actually cover. Uh, you know, there was uh, a lot of things were not in this package, uh, including there was no assault weapons ban. There was no ban on a high, on high capacity magazines. And one of the biggest things which I can hear a lot of arguments for those two things, but there was no uh, hike in the age to purchase certain semi-automatic rifles from 18 to 21. So I feel like that is kind of odd that that particular measure was left out of this. I think it's just also important to note that, that this is the most significant movement we've seen in a decade. And even if it's not everything that you personally would want, the fact that there's even movement in the gridlock system is heartening. Yeah, I'm a little bit more cynical on this. I think that this is underwhelming. I think that when you but, you know, you look behind the curtain on a lot of these provisions, it's mostly incentives, not requirements in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And the area that I'm most concerned about is this straw purchases provision because it affects places like New York, Chicago so much, like the combination of straw purchases, interstate uh, sale of guns, this so-called iron pipeline that leads, you know, people to to use loopholes to, to buy and then resell guns to people illegally. It's so it was it's being sold by people like Chris Murphy as some kind of major provision to, you know, clamp down on these straw purchases, which just to define is essentially somebody buying a gun and turning it around and selling it to somebody else who either couldn't legally buy it themselves or the person's just not sure. Like they're not going through the proper processes when they're reselling that gun. And this is a huge area of purchases of guns. So just as um to quote a couple of stats here, in 2010, the Journal of Urban Health screened 149 licensed retailers in California and found roughly one in five agreed to participate in a straw purchase of a handgun. And there's like tons of evidence about just like a lot of the crime happening in urban areas, how many of these are tied to straw purchases. And trying to figure out exactly what this bill does for straw purchases is really hard. We had a member of our team call Chris Murphy's office this morning. They couldn't explain really what's going on here. From what I can tell, Right now, the straw purchases are illegal. They're just not being enforced properly. And there's a ten up to 10 years in prison or $250,000 for participating in a straw purchase. And th this law increases to 15 years. As if the 10-year penalty changing to 15 is gonna is gonna stop anybody uh, in this process. And there, there are other things where they clarify the law, et cetera. I'm not convinced that this is gonna do anything. And this is where I start to have problems with this bill. I probably would have voted for it, but they're selling it as something more significant that it is. Like a lot of this is just funding, like, you know, funding mental health, great. Like even the straw, per, the, the red flag law stuff doesn't require anything. It just gives more money to implement a system, but it also allows you to implement other, if you don't wanna implement a red flag system or enhance your red flag system, it gives you money to do other things. So I'm underwhelmed. 
I think it's just a pragmatism versus idealism thing, though, because if you have all the provisions or if it's if it's even tighter, or even more extreme, then you're not going to get Republicans to vote for it. And the fact of the matter is this is a step that's being taken in a relatively unprecedented way in recent history. And so for that reason, while it may not be perfect, I think that's at least progress. It's window dressing at best. But I agree, Ricky, at least at least it's something because we haven't seen anything in this in this direction for, for many years, almost 30 years at this point. Uh, but Robbie, right as we were recording our podcast, we had a little bit of a breaking news, kind of a big breaking news happening with this case that went from uh, I believe it was from the state of New York to the Supreme Court dealing with um, being able to carry a uh, concealed carry of a weapon. Yeah, basically. And I, I covered this case in the newsletter. Uh, that we wrote a couple weeks ago, and also with an, another case that was handed down, I think yesterday or the day before, involving Maine's private schools. And so far, I'm two for two in my predictions of Supreme Court. I'm very proud of myself, although I'm really sad about this outcome because basically New York has this law uh, about who can get a concealed carry permit. And the process is really flawed, but very hard to argue that it's unconstitutional. And I haven't been able to read the opinion yet because it was handed down while we we're recording this. But I doubt that the, the, this provision is, this uh, Supreme Court ruling is going to hinge on how unfair the law is. I think it's going to hinge on how restrictive it is. And I think this is a continuation for me uh, of something I've talked about previously on this podcast, which is for most of our history, there was a, the Second Amendment was viewed as a collective right, because in the Second Amendment, it talks about a well-regulated militia. And only until about the 1970s was there this move within uh, academia and jurisprudence, largely tied to a different kind of NRA that emerged at that time period that has been pushing for an individual right to gun ownership. And we've now gotten to the point where not only is there an individual right to gun ownership, but there's an individual right to carry a gun potentially in this decision in public, which is a pretty, whether you agree with it or not, is a pretty radical change from where we have been in a society. And this is troubling to me. I find it anti-democratic. The voters of New York want these laws, but we have a Supreme Court telling them they can't have it. So moving on, over a series of explosive hearings and with a few more still to go, the January 6th committee is stating a case to the American public. The country's democracy was in grave danger that day and still isn't safe now. They're presenting all manner of damning evidence on a sweeping plot to overturn the 2020 election, warning that future elections are at risk from the same forces. And yet, even once everything's laid out, the major question still remains, what will all of this amount to in the end? Ravi, any bold predictions from anything that will come from some of the things that we've seen here? Yeah, I would say that these are extremely fascinating hearings and there definitely is new information involved here. I'll start by just talking about how the public views these hearings. So there actually has been really high TV ratings for these. 58% of Americans say they've been following this either somewhat closely or very closely and the actual reported ratings bear this out. And a lot of people, if you look behind this, the American public is split on whether Donald Trump uh, committed a crime, 46 to 47%. Uh, think he did or did not commit a crime, but uh, six in 10 uh, Americans think that he bears some responsibility over what happened. But more Republicans say they're more likely to vote for a candidate who says the election was stolen than those who say they are less likely to vote for somebody who said the election was stolen. This is all from a Quinnipiac poll that came out last week. So uh, before I even get into like what happened in this hearings, I think that the backdrop of this is that 
the American public is by and large very alarmed by what happened on January 6th, like to quote David from the biggest, you know, witness in the January 6th hearing is us, you know, the people who watched January 6th. But the incentives within the Republican Party continue to be to peddle the election conspiracies. And that's why we're seeing a ton of successful candidates around the country peddling election conspiracies. The cognitive dissonance here among the right is just astonishing to me, especially when it comes to the fact that if this were just Democrats, if this were just people on the left saying all these things about Trump, I could see them saying, oh, that's just propaganda, whatever. But these are not just people who are conservative. These are people in Trump's camp. I want to take a quick look at some of the things that the attorney general at that particular time, William Barr, had to say when it came to whether or not he believed the election was stolen. Repeatedly. Uh, told the president in no uncertain terms uh, that uh, I did not see evidence of fraud uh, and, uh, you know, that would have affected the outcome uh, of the election. And frankly, a year and a half later, I haven't seen anything to, to change my mind on that. There's so much here. I think there's the political angle, which is how much weight do we put at, like, I think, these fringe theories that the most powerful person in the country was peddling and resisting his closest advisors and family members, which alone is a problem. But then I think there's the question of what is the legal outcome here? Like, is there going to be new charges? I find five interesting things that happened during these hearings so far that bear on Trump's legal responsibility here and the people around him. Number one was that he set up this election defense fund and raised at least $100 million for it and a lot of questions about how that money was spent. Not looking good for him. Uh, it does not look like it was used for an election defense fund, which could be fraud. Two is that Eastman, his lawyer, admitted in Trump's presence, this is according to Vi uh, Mike Pence's lawyer, um, admitted in Trump's presence that the plan to pressure Pence violated the 1887 law, the Electoral Count Act. Third is that there is all this evidence about uh, the president and the people around him pushing alternate electors, basically meaning like getting people installed to overturn the elections at the state level. Once again, conspiracy to break the laws of the United States. Fourth, there was this, this incident that was reported that um, Trump was told that people were saying, hang Mike Pence. And according to one witness, Trump said, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Now that's conspiracy to do something else. <laughs> and then fifth was the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This is maybe less uh, law-breaking, but more just like dereliction of duty, is that the, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the highest ranking military officer, officer in the United States, said that Pence, during the middle of all this, was adamantly calling for military assistance, including the National Guard, and people around Trump were resisting because they didn't want the public to think that Trump had lost control of what was happening. And so I'd say those are the five most important things to me. And I think four out of five of those uh, bear on the president's legal responsibility here or the former president's legal responsibility. I mean, I think this, it goes without saying that there's a lot of damning, very poorly reflective material in here and Trump and on a lot of the people around him. And that's not something I'll refute at all. Um, my question is, where is the data that the viewership is so great? Uh, this was, I think, from the Nielsen ratings that it was it exceeded the Kavanaugh hearings, which I think were among the most watched congressional hearings in recent memory, and that the first night of the January 6th hearings were higher than the Kavanaugh hearing. So it was 20 million the first night across like dozens of networks in total. And typically just like one newscast on ABC, NBC, CBS would have 18 to 20 million viewers alone in these same news broadcasts across all of them are getting the same amount just for the hearing. 
And then now it's down to 10 million for like any given day that's broadcasted. And CBS reran Young Sheldon, the Big Bang Theory spinoff, and it got 600,000 more viewers than in the same time slot the earrings got. So I think, you know, I, I think they're significant. I am I'm happy to see truth come out. I'm happy to see things be investigated, but I don't think the American public are holding it as the number one thing, especially after there have been impeachment hearings already. And there's there's a feeling of alienation because the GOP who members who wanted to participate in this originally were rejected by Pelosi. And that's kind of an unfortunate optic because this could have been actually a bipartisan kind of 9-11 commission style situation. I think it's an opportunity missed because this is truth that we should get to the bottom of. But I don't agree that the typical American is really putting this as like their number one priority in life. Well, they should. Because I understand, you know, inflation is very high right now and the economy is not looking great. Uh, I understand that. If we're not a democracy that can peacefully transfer power from one presidential administration to another, we're not the United States of America anymore. And your inflation is not going to matter if your society is collapsing around you. And yeah. that's what I think is so troubling about this. I mean, we have evidence here that Trump's direct words led to either violence or threats of violence. There was revelations in this particular hearing about these two groups, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, that back when the debates were going on, when Trump told them when he was asked to disavow these groups, basically told them to stand back and stand by. Members of these groups took that as an, a literal directive to say, OK, we're going to stand on watch for this uh, membership. in the Proud Boys tripled after just that one statement was made. There was a documentarian that was on, on the scene that day, January 6th, who testified at the first hearing that he was with the Proud Boys and they, he saw them move towards the Capitol before Trump's initial speech uh, even took place. They wanted to go to the Capitol to set up for something that was very premeditated. And whether Trump actually coordinated with these groups, it's just like the Russian investigation, whether he actually coordinated with these groups, I don't think that, he, I mean, from a legal standpoint, that matters, but I don't think that's what's really the, the, the point here. The point is, that's what they got from it. And we have to ask ourselves as a country, why are these groups doing these things in the name of Trump? Right. Yeah. And I think like as depressing as the stats that you shared, Ricky, are, and I agree with you, Corey, that it's depressing that we don't have more people paying attention. I think that both could be true. I think both Americans could say it's not necessarily their number one issue, which is not what the Quinnipiac poll was asking. They were asking, like, are you following it closely or somewhat closely, which more than half of Americans said they are. And you could say, all right, these are hearings, just like the Kavanaugh hearings. If you replace them with something else, either something like Young Sheldon or just a general news broadcast, that could outperform the other thing. But that more people are tuning into it than other examples of the network shutting down and just showing a congressional hearing. And to me, that's like, all right, we could say, like, it's depressing that Americans, more Americans didn't tune in, but they should. Uh, and I don't blame Nancy Pelosi for not putting conspiracists on the panel. I think like part of your, the, the, the job description when the Democrats have a majority, the vast, vast, vast majority of votes for the House of Representatives and the majority of members is that it's their prerogative to screen something like this. And I think like the cost of entry is that you actually believe that January 6th was a problem. Like, I think that's an acceptable thing to ask from somebody to go on that committee. I think willing participation and a desire to be a part of a bipartisan commission should be 
the baseline of whether or not we actually have that because it's not reflective of Congress. It's not reflective of the American people, the people that the voices that are there. And it would have been I would have preferred something that was more representative. I'm, I'm, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks both were rejected. And they both of believe course, the election yeah. was stolen. Yeah. Like, yeah I think and I think and, and I think having both sides of something represented potentially could have been more not that not as equal because like sunlight is the best disinfectant situation. If they can't defend that point of view in the in the court of law in these hearings then that is like to hear those things in dialogue i think is productive yeah i think some of the not only like jim jordan is a great example somebody who believes that the election was stolen which is not like a both sides argument like this is not the kind of thing where there are two sides i know i like I, well there are two sides unfortunately there's a lie and there's the truth. Yeah, and so there's why not? And why not hear that in in conversation and 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 allow that to fall flat? I think the like the worry that somebody like Nancy Pelosi had was that having somebody there to push those narratives is going to populate in people's minds that this stuff is true even when it's not. Because I mean, at the end of the day, we've seen this this 2000 Mules documentary. We've seen all these fake videos of people dumping votes. There's so many ways to make it look like your argument is true, especially when it comes to anything political, because it's all about what you already believe. You come with preconceived notions. But you keep saying this is this is not bipartisan. I mean, Liz Cheney is, is running most of this. She's a Republican and she's a very conservative Republican, by the way. She's not a moderate or centrist if you look at her voting record. Not to mention, and there are several people from uh, Trump's side, from his campaign advisor, Jason Miller, to all these people, his lawyer, Alex Cannon, all of these people confirming that there was no evidence of widespread election fraud. These are Republican conservative leaning individuals. These are not liberals. So that's what I don't understand. If this was yeah. all Democrats, I could I could totally buy that argument. But these are these are not uh, liberal individuals. And they're all saying that, you know, Trump was told that this election wasn't stolen and he continued to push that notion anyway. Yeah, well, and let me ask you a couple questions then. So do you think that the Nuremberg Tribunal should have had Nazis on it or the 9-11 committee should have Al-Qaeda members on it or sympathizers with Al-Qaeda on it? No, I just don't think that rejecting people who, or at least allowing cross-examination or allowing it to actually act like a hearing would be more effective. And I'm I'm not defending it. Like, I don't have any issue with these hearings happening. I don't. I'm I'm talking about why... This is not getting as much democratic or public interest as I believe it should be. I completely agree with you guys. I think this is a huge problem. I have no problem with what's going on on in terms of how this is being produced, even though there are people who are upset that there's like an accent ABC producer behind the scenes and it's over dramatized. Like it's fine with me because they're just getting the truth out there. It's not working with the American people. And I'm saying that potentially that would have been one way to have brought in a broader base and actually maybe started a conversation between the two camps. I think it still remains to be seen how effective it is with the American people. I think that's something that we cannot quite determine as of yet. Well, I just think the president here is like longstanding. Although, by the way, everybody who appears is allowed to bring a lawyer and the president was subpoenaed, I think, right? Yeah, he was. And, and some of his members of his camp did not show up. So there was definitely ample opportunity for them to present their side. I'm not defending their like long-term trajectory or their stances. Also, like, this was not about clear. whether or not the election was stolen. This was about January 6th as an event. And so I think if there was a separate hearing about the 2020 election, uh, then then you would be very valid to have those individuals who believe that to try to present whatever evidence that they can present. Um, but this was more about, you know, January 6th, which, of course, was sparked by that by that notion that the election was stolen. Uh, but again, I mean, all of these legal experts have have gone to this and said they just don't see any. Evidence. I'm just saying that's one way that maybe more Americans wouldn't have turned their ears off, which is unfortunate because this is something that everyone should be paying attention to. I think that Americans are paying attention. Like the majority of Americans, when asked, say they're paying attention to this. So I, I'm not sure that this is like some kind of dud so far. 
I agree that there are a lot of Americans who are listening to it, but I think if the the goal of this is to change minds or persuade some people who are set in their ways about what happened or what didn't happen with Trump in the election, that the most effective way would be to not alienate them. And I think, you know, the percentage of people, unfortunately, are the stubborn ones. And I don't think this is going to change minds. Well, speaking of rhinos and stampedes, New York's highest court says Happy the Elephant, housed in the Bronx Zoo, is not a legal person. That may not come as a surprise to most of you, but the reality is even recent conversations around artificial intelligence do raise new and long-standing questions about what it means to be human and the rights we afford animals and others. Ricky, I know you're a huge animal lover. Uh, put on your PETA hat and take us through the situation with Happy the Elephant. Well, the sad thing is that Happy is sad. And um, she is probably about 50 years old. She's been in captivity since she was young. And she's been at the Bronx Zoo for 45 years and in isolation for the past 15, which is like really incomprehensible that in a place like New York, we do stuff like that still. And she's been like identified as remarkably intelligent. In 2005, she was the first elephant to recognize herself in a mirror, which is something that we've only seen dolphins and apes do aside from human beings. So like a degree of self-awareness that's actually kind of profound uh, within the animal kingdom. And so this case was brought by uh, a group called Non-Human Rights Group uh, that we're trying to petition to bring her to a sanctuary just because it doesn't seem like a humane situation. But they use habeas corpus, which is a constitutional right uh, to like bodily liberty, to contest any illegal confinement um, in order to suggest that essentially she has constitutional rights as a person would. And so then the headlines come of happy the elephant is not a person, which makes this sound like a way less nuanced conversation than it actually is. I think it's about bodily autonomy and not personhood as much. And I, I, I'm not a legal expert, but I don't know that I love this route because allowing an animal to have a full like human scope of rights is probably a slippery slope that we can't even conceptualize where that would end at. But I think this is opening up an important conversation about what is bodily autonomy? Uh, how does it relate to animals? And is there some degree of rights that we've not uh, given to animals? But um, this ended up coming down in a five to two decision um, and she will remain at the Bronx Zoo. It went all the way up to the appeals court in New York and it's the first such to uh, such case to do so in the English speaking world. So all the legal experts and all the judges seem to say like this is a question we're going to have to ask, but potentially allowing this animal to be a person could change how we eat, whether we can have dogs, a lot of very profound questions here. Yeah, I think you can believe that animals deserve better treatment and our laws need to protect them better and still not think that we should recognize them as people or persons yeah. uh, for the, the purposes of our law. But I do think that this raises interesting questions, right? Like the fact that there was even two who voted for this, mm -hmm. I think is the news. Like even Absolutely. though, and I think that's where actually the, the non, non person, what do we call it? The non-human uh, rights groups mm -hmm. were actually really happy f with the two because yeah. I think it signaled progress. You know, Peter Singer, the Princeton uh, ethicist who wrote Animal Liberation, which is actually a book that prompted me to give up meat throughout most of my adulthood. Uh, this is what he had to say. And I think this is a provocative question. He said, if possessing a higher degree of intelligence does not entitle one human to use another for his or her own ends, how can it entitle humans to exploit non-humans? All the arguments to prove man's superiority cannot shatter this hard fact. In suffering, the animals are equals. So I think what he's saying is, First of all, there are a lot of humans who have low cognitive capacity and we treat them with every bit as much respect and, and afford them every legal protection as possible. And 
we don't say that because we're smarter than them that they deserve any less treatment. This gets to the AI, by the way, yeah. because like the AI is going to be smarter than us. If they use our logic against us, then, then we're fucked. Then we're not yeah. we're, we're lower than them. Yeah. So I do think this is interesting. I, I, I wouldn't have afforded them the rights, but I do think we have major contradictions. And to me, like there's one, I want Happy the Elephant to be as happy as possible, but I'm, I'm mostly concerned about the insane amounts of pigs, chickens, cows that are industrial factory farms and being the equivalent of being tortured on a daily basis uh, because we want cheaper meat uh, and because we have a consolidated meat industry that's largely unaccountable. I think if we could pass some common sense laws to clean up those practices or even just align ourselves with some other countries like some of them in the EU, for example, we could alleviate a significant amount of suffering. I would have afforded happy you know, personship or whatever they were trying to do. Because I, I believe, you know, she can rec recognize herself in the mirror. That's big to me. I don't eat intelligent animals. I only eat dumb animals. And so I think that, um, you know, I don't, you know, I stopped eating pork because pigs are very, very intelligent. And so I think that we should not eat intelligent animals. I don't, I don't think we should keep intelligent animals captive. Well, I think the, the pig example is really interesting to me because I have so many friends who are dog lovers and I love dogs too. But I do find it fascinating that the same people who are outraged over Michael Vick are going to go home and eat bacon. And mm. there's a lot of evidence that pigs are at least as sentient and intelligent as dogs, but they're just not as quote unquote cute to us as a society. So we treat them differently. They're not domesticated. That to me is a massive contradiction. And the amount of suffering that we inflict on pigs unnecessarily to me is a travesty. Yeah, actually, I don't eat I don't eat dumb animals because I don't eat dogs. And um, yeah, and chickens are pretty smart, too. So maybe I have to rethink my position here. And I think like this is what it gets to like it's it, this is like the least it makes you the least popular to any party is to start talking like this. But I think like Jonathan Staffanfor has a great book about this, essentially like, look, like if people just eat, ate less of this and yeah. ate it from more ethically sourced places, if you can afford it, obviously, there's a huge like argument about affordability and but not. But if you are one of the people who can afford to eat less and or ethically sourced stuff that makes a difference i'll come down on the fact that i don't think that animals need constitutional rights because i think that confuses what it means to be a person and a member of society i think they need clearly defined rights i think they will have them ultimately and be granted them ultimately especially with lab-grown meat and how increasingly unsustainable and increasingly unethical increasingly just obsolete i think the way that we consume animals and treat them is going to become going forward. And so I think when we look back, this will be like the first little flash in the pan of something that is ultimately going to come to fruition. And I don't think that I think intelligence is a way to get the conversation started. But I also think that all living things will probably ultimately be afforded some degree of protection and rights when their exploitation becomes less necessary to to operate society to feed people. Um, so I think this is kind of a look towards the future. And that seems like what all the judges, even the ones that ruled against Happy, uh, seem to agree on. That's a that's a great way of putting it. My bold prediction: by 2060, meat will be outlawed in the United States. We'll see if there's a United States by that point. Um, speaking of things getting outlawed in this country, the FDA doesn't want any smoke, or at least they don't want any nicotine in the smoke. Regulators have toyed with this idea for decades, and it will still take many more years and a series of legal hurdles for this to take effect. But this will be the biggest smoking regulation in history. And it's an interesting case for something that we talk about a lot on this show, regulating vices. Uh, Ricky, I imagine being libertarian, you have a few feelings about the FDA wanting to do this. Well, first, let's steel man their argument here. They're 
are 480,000 U.S. deaths from cigarettes annually, 1,300 premature deaths daily. Uh, it causes one in five deaths or at least is linked to them in the United States. And this is a $95 billion industry. So people are enriching themselves on suffering, essentially. So there's definitely a case to be made. I don't think this is the way to do it in my classic libertarian take here, but it would throw 30 million people into withdrawal. Um, there's potential that people would just puff harder, smokes, uh, hold in smoke for longer, or smoke more cigarettes to get the same nicotine effect. Um, and you would have to give these companies decades to comply with this just because it's not practical and the companies will likely sue. So I don't think this is the way to go, but I think it's a problem worth solving but education time, the fact that it's becoming less and less prevalent in our society naturally is the way to go. Prohibition never works. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on not necessarily being on board with this being mandated by law, but it does raise an interesting question about just what the role of nicotine is in our addiction and whether like just running the experiment in your head to say, well, if we did outlaw nicotine in these cigarettes, what would happen? There was an article in Reason, the author said, you know, do the geniuses at the FDA not realize that many people will simply smoke a greater number of cigarettes per day in order to get their nicotine fix? Uh, but then there's other evidence, and um, there's this professor of psychiatry at the University of Minnesota who had a 2018 study that followed 1,250 smokers and found that participants who had been randomly assigned cigarettes with ultra-low nicotine smoked less and exhibited fewer signs of dependency than those who'd been giving cigarettes with nicotine levels that were gradually reduced over the course of 20 weeks. Uh, there were downsides, though, that people were more likely to drop out of the study when they were part of the non-nicotine. So it's complicated. I, I I wouldn't be as strident as the reason our article is about, like, obviously you should know. I, I actually... I think that this is an experiment that would be interesting to run. I'm not sure we'll ever get there. They also, I think this is something that also just broke as we were recording. Uh, they are asking Juul, the, the maker of the Juul vapes, to take their e-cigarettes off the U.S. market. Uh, it was announced earlier this week that they were uh, planning to do this, that they were going to announce whether or not they were going to do this market denial of um, of Juul. Uh, and it, it, it appears that while we were recording, they did order them to take them off the market. Uh, the market denial order would follow a nearly two year review of data presented by the vaping company, which were trying to authorize uh, its uh, e-cigarettes because now there's a new, as we talked about uh, on the show previously, there are new regulations with e-cigarettes where now it has to be reviewed and approved by the FDA before it can hit the market. So if you are a Juul user, you know, scoop those things up while you can because they're going bye-bye. Well, uh, and we'll link in the show notes that we, we covered extensively the e-cigarette the e phenomenon. And, you know, I think this gets to like where you draw the line on personal advice. I would say cigarettes are a really hard case. E-cigarettes are a really hard case because of the sheer amount of death and health issues that, that come from them. And there's also issues of the commons, like secondhand smoke. Like it's an interesting question that we have a society that if you leave your kid in a target and go in, uh, and leave them in a car for 30 minutes that you can be arrested, but you could puff secondhand smoke in their face continuously, which is really harmful to their health. And that's not child abuse. I'm not saying it should be. I'm just saying that contradiction is really crazy to me. Yeah, I think it is child abuse. Coming at it from both angles, though, at the same time, like the jury's still out on how much safer vaping is, but it does eliminate some of the dangers and some of the health hazards. And so I think 
going at both of these at the same time is just going to create a black market. And also, if we're worried about eliminating cigarette deaths, I don't think that also eliminating a different vehicle for nicotine is necessarily the smartest thing. Exactly, Ricky. And also, too, this is odd because this seems to be a bipartisan thing. I mean, the Biden administration is is, is doing this, but uh, the Trump administration actually raised, as we t- said, I think I mentioned this earlier, they raised the age to buy tobacco products from 18 to 21. So this doesn't seem to be just coming from one side. So that's, that's really interesting to me as well. Here's my prediction as we send this one off is I think that we're going to see a bunch of kids doing chewing tobacco. No, I'm kidding. I just, <laughs> oh, well, I'm from Alabama, so that wouldn't be that unusual of a sight <laughs> so for gross. me. Uh, it is pretty gross. They spit it everywhere. It's disgusting. And finally, Ravi, what better way to welcome you back to the studio than an opportunity for you to pitch us on one of your possibly radical ideas? Yeah, I would say this is one of my more serious ones, but you tell me. So right now we have 17,000 police agencies in this country. It's a highly disaggregated police force in this country. And uh, to give you a comparison, UK has 43. So 43 to 17,000 police agencies and nearly half of police forces have fewer than 10 officers. Three quarters of them have fewer than two dozen. And this leads to a lot of the undertraining, lack of accountability, et cetera, that we see in things like Uvalde. It also leads to issues of staffing because people uh, are like, like there's like people live in one town and there's often local rules to say you have to live in the town that you operate in, et cetera. It has issues of training, sharing of data, you know, expertise, uh, management. Like there's like a separate police. A lot of these are super small, like a 10 officer police force with one chief, right? And then another one with another chief, right? And like Uvalde is a good example. Like you, you wind up with these people who potentially are not really fit for the job. So what I think the federal government should do is use the ton of, tons of money that we spend to um, fund different police initiatives. Like obviously Biden announced a big initiative. So like instead of defunding the police, we need to like fund them with certain incentives to like get them to do the right kinds of things. I think we should attach to that funding certain incentives to get to the point where our 17,000 police forces is cut in half at the very least so that we start bringing them together more because I think this has this will have a lot of uh, benefits for society. You want a consolidation of police Consolidation powers. of police forces, yeah. How, <laughs> I'm thinking this through. Yeah, you're reading um, my notes. So what did you learn no, from I'm, my, my have, excellent so, notes here? Well, okay. So then does that mean you only have like a thousand police stations and stuff? I think it, it or, could like, be just like we have, you know, a good example is New York. We have one police force, but we have so many precincts, okay, right? So, it, there's, so in terms of like you're not consolidating where police are stationed. Yeah, no. And actually in some ways it could be beneficial because then uh, if you if I live in one town and you live in the next town, I can go work in your town. Right. Uh, and so I think it can expand the amount of uh, like expertise that's available. Like there, you know, there, there's just a wider pool available for people to hire from. Uh, and I also like I think the data sharing is is underrated here. I'm concerned then like in rural areas, how that yeah. would work. Like, you know, I think a lot of the talk about police accountability goes back to a connection to a community and understanding a community and the context and, and recruiting from people who are ultimately going to serve their neighbors and making sure that there's a connection, that there's synergy between the police and the people that they're policing. And I, my my concern is that centralizing it and militarizing it or making it feel like at, even how the NYPD gets a lot of flack for being so enormous, for being so bureaucratic, for having so many, uh, like such a, like a pyramid of leadership. And I think that, you know, making that more 
could sew the case around the country might not be the best idea. It might be a case by case basis right. or an area by area basis. Yeah. But I think that given the geographic diversity of America and just how how there are some super rural areas, some super urban areas, I I'm all for making sure that police forces communicate, but I'm not sure that consolidating them is the way. Well, I actually think like one of the interesting things to watch for this proposal is Uvalde itself, right? So if it is true that having a local police force is more responsive to the community, we should be seeing things like this police chief being put on a leave of absence, the mayor, like the mayor is defending the police chief, which is really puzzling. And, and my theory, and you've spent way more time in the South Quarry than I have, is that a lot of these towns, the police are the patronage jobs of the most powerful people in the town, and often they're the, the they're unaccountable in many ways. And so one of the things I would want to hope for, and I would definitely want this to be run as an experiment, is that if you disaggregate it more, maybe there's more accountability, because instead of the police officers, this very small 10 you know person basically like monopoly on force in the small town, at least is diluted by a bunch of neighboring towns. So in the case of Uvalde, if you reran re the experiment and they were combined with 20 other towns, maybe this uh, police chief is off the job because people aren't like, oh, that's like, I, I can't piss off this guy because he's the one guy in my neighborhood with a gun who can lock me up and they're super corrupt and yada, yada, yada. You could see where it goes. So that's what I would want to see out of this is like, I'm not sure, to be honest, like, is it more what you're talking about, more responsive, or is it what we're seeing in Uvalde, which is less responsive? Well, the two sides of that is what you're referring to in the Deep South is something they call the good old boy system, where people are almost like a, a, a nepotism type thing, where these people who really aren't that uh, qualified get those types of jobs. But to Ricky's point, one thing I could see a problem with this is if you're bringing in people from outside of a community to police that community, uh, if they're culturally different. From the people in that community i could see that being problematic i know that's been a thing in more urban areas when you have people who are living in the suburbs or coming to these cities they have a different attitude a different approach to some of the people in their uh, districts so I, I could see that being a problem but I, I don't think this is a terrible idea i, I do think we i mean seventeen thousand police agencies i mean that's insane now to compare it to the uk i mean we have a very big population and 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 size different but it's still like UK, if you were to level up the uk to our population it's still a dramatic, it would difference. Be a dramatic difference but i think no, there's correct. another phenomenon here which i'm concerned about which is often, and you see this in Mississippi and Alabama, you'll have these private prisons uh, mm. that are huge employers in a town and the police force in the same town, same families, often same politics, where there's this incentive to lock as many people up as possible because it's a job It's profitable. Yeah. yeah, and so to me, maybe, I'm not saying this will solve all that, but maybe if you dilute the force and you connect the sort of prison industry so that this new 20, 30 county police force is not just sending it to that one town. So it dilutes the political incentives and the bad incentives involved here. Maybe that could be potentially positive too. Maybe you could do that even outside of this, right? Maybe you could say you don't automatically send somebody to the prison that's in that county if they commit a crime in that county. Yeah, I think my last point on this is that I think a lot of the unrest that we have around policing comes down to the fact that police have become an arm of the government and not an arm of the people that they're meant to serve. And so while I am in favor of collaboration. I'm not sure that I'm in favor of consolidation because I think that'll just increase that distance. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was going to say, like, I think it's hard to avoid having the police be an arm of the government because, like, by their definition, like, unless they are the true militias that we're promised in the Second Amendment. Well, you, you tied it all back together there pretty good, Robbie. Well, thank you all for listening and watching us today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time. Oh,